Well, we're in the month of December, and Christmas season is upon us. Yay! All right. Um, I think, you know, maybe in August I started to see Christmas decorations and stuff in stores. And so it's slowly been lingering, and there it is. But this is a season, of course, of goodwill. Uh, this is a season of thinking of others, family gatherings, bottomless wallets, um, putting up decorations, um, drinking hot chocolate, which I'm not allowed to do on my diet, um, but lots of things like that. It's really just a, a great, great time of the year as far as family, as far as culture. Um, but, you know, for many, it is also a painful time. And I, I, I would just, you know, speak about myself to begin with. You know, it's been less than a year. My, my mom passed away, I think it was the 22nd or 23rd of December. Um, and we went out for the funeral and... Literally, I came back last Christmas day for, um, you know, to be with my family after having, you know, gone to the funeral and, and, and done the funeral. And then my dad passed away a couple of months later. Um, you know, so it's been, it's been a tough year from that perspective. And, and Christmas Day, there's going to be a part of me that's going to want to reach out for that phone like I've always done on Christmas afternoon and call my parents. But there's no one to call. Um, anymore, and I and I realize you know losing a parent is 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 traumatic. It is a big deal, um, but there are some people who have lost a spouse, and this is a life partner, and and just imagine the the, the difficulty and the struggle that is there. And um, let's just you know always be mindful that that there are people who are who are struggling, and it may not be that they're just paralyzed. They're going through the motions. They're spending time with people. They're enjoying themselves, but there's a part of them that is also hurting. And um, we need to be, to be mindful of that. And uh, I, I do think, though, that, that, that the hardship of Christmas is one of those uh, themes that uh, a writer like Charles Dickens really pulls out well in the story of Christmas Carol. Uh, you know, he, he, he breathes life into this, this, uh, this family, uh, the Cratchit family, who are just finding joy in the simple things of life, even though they have a son. By, who, by what name? What's his name? Tiny Tim, right, who is just really struggling with his health, and yet they're trying to find a, a positive perspective and making the most of all that. And, of course, in that story, there's the character Ebenezer Scrooge, who um, is miserly, who is um, selfish, um, who is just um, anti-Christmas, and, of course, the whole expression humbug comes from him. But through the visit of three spirits, um, he ultimately has a change of heart. And with that change of heart, he turns around and he is, he is overwhelmingly um, abundant in his kindness and his goodwill to his faithful um, employee, Bob Cratchit, and his family and does what he can to help uh, his son uh, in particular. Um, and, you know, I think Dickens does a good job of giving us a moral lesson does a good job of just reminding us that we can be so consumed with ourselves and our pain and our sorrow that we can lose the spirit of Christmas, whatever that spirit is, um, from, a, from a purely humanistic perspective, um, you know, the culture and, and the whole idea that goes with that. But as much as I do like a good Dickens novel, and I do, um, I, I would say that I, I, I much prefer uh, the breathed-out, inspired word of God. And God has given us, um, in this Gospel of John, a, uh, really just an argument that is presenting evidence that leads to belief, that leads to life. Now, you're probably tired of me saying that. But you know what? I am not tired of saying it. Because if there's nothing else that you glean from this whole time as we're going through the Gospel of John, it is chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Turn there, if you would, please. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. I would just challenge you to memorize this passage of Scripture. It is the key that unlocks the whole Gospel of John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, meaning all these things were witnessed by the disciples. The evidence is there, but they're not written down here. But these, the things that are in this Gospel, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. There's the goal. 
There's the purpose, evidence, belief, life. And it just, it's just amazing to me how rich and wonderful God's Word is, and in particular, this Gospel is. And like I said, as much as I enjoy a good Dickens novel, this Gospel of John is, is just showing me over and over and over again how beautiful um, God puts together through, through His servants his word for our benefit. Now in chapter 3 in particular of John's gospel, we're, we're, we're not encountering um, a man by the name of Ebenezer, but a man by the name of Nicodemus. Um, in this encounter with Jesus, another lesson of a changed heart takes place, but it is not simply a moral story. It is the story. Now, this is where we have to think. Was the whole story that Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins and went and was buried and was ro he rose again. Is that the whole story? According to John, that's not the whole story because that all happened for a purpose. Ultimately, that you and I would have what? What's the word? Life. Okay? So we have to understand that, that what Jesus accomplished on the cross wasn't the, the end of the story, but it was the means by which God's love was expressed and accomplished into people so that they ultimately would have life. And even that life is not the end of the story because there will be eternal life and we picture that uh, moving on. It's really just an amazing, an amazing reality that, that here in, in John's Gospel, chapter 3, in the story of Nicodemus, we have this, this whole new story of a changed heart, which we call regeneration. It's a new birth that all who are drawn by God's Spirit enjoy. It's a new birth that comes because of that initial birth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that had rippling effects, ultimately with Jesus going to the cross. And, and it's in that context that that very familiar verse of Scripture, John 3.16 is laid out for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And for most of us, I would say maybe for many of us, we, we know that verse and oftentimes that verse is kind of ripped out of its context and we don't necessarily see how it fits into the greater context of things. And I hope that over the next couple of weeks as we go through this passage, chapter 3, and really through the through the end of this major argument here in chapter 3, uh, we will not only see that, but on Christmas Day, that will be our text. And we will see that text not, in its, not kind of setting itself apart from everything else, but with the, with the fabric and the study and the foundation that we have laid in going through this gospel so far. Um, so I just, just share some of these things with you to remind you that Christmas is about a child that is born. It is about the birth of a king, but it is also about you must be born again. And it is also about he was born to die. Because Christmas is the beginning of his earthly life, and of course that ended at the cross, but Jesus is eternal, and so that's part of the picture of his purposes and his relationship with us. And so um, we want today then to, to be introduced to this man by the name of of Nicodemus. Now, I will say this, that John in his argument is presenting Nicodemus purposefully, and he will be for us a picture of a religious person whom we last week talked about as being a superficial believer. And as we study Jesus' encounter with him, we will be able to pull out some principles about how do we, how do we minister to someone who is a religious person, who um, who may value the Word of God, who may value the person of Jesus Christ, um, but is superficial, who is not a true believer. And uh, I think that by, at the end of our time today, uh, I'll be pulling some principles together. But as we go through, we'll be connecting some dots along the way. Okay? So first of all, I would like for, to introduce to you this man. The man is introduced. Now, I've written it this way specifically for a reason. It says in verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
John could more naturally have said, there was a Pharisee. But he chose to use, instead, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And this is a clear indication to me that what he is now sharing is a story, an encounter that Jesus is having with someone who represents the superficial belief talked about in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. So go back a few verses here. This is what we studied last week. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Very next verse, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. You understand that the chapter divisions were put there afterwards, right? So he's speaking generically about man that he is rejecting, and then right away he says, now there was a man who was a Pharisee, okay? This is, to me, clearly identifying Nicodemus as the, I want to say, perfect example of the kind of person that Jesus is talking about. Now, what do we know about Nicodemus? He was a man, um, and, uh, oh, there's the verse, all right, there we go. Um, he was a Pharisee, and uh, as a Pharisee, he would have been respected. I know that we have this kind of negative opinion about Pharisees, right? It's kind of part of our, our persona of, or our understanding of what a Pharisee is. But in, in that culture, a Pharisee was a well-respected, um, uh, an appreciated citizen um, in, that, in that culture, and in particular was understood to be moral. Okay? So not only was he a Pharisee, he was also um, a, a ruler of the Jews, which meant that he served in the Sanhedrin, and therefore uh, he would have had some political influence. We're, we're told Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in, chap in, in uh, verse 10 and, and talks about him being a teacher of the Jews. And so I think it's also appropriate for us to say that he was a scholar, he was a teacher, and likely because his name was Nicodemus, it was a Greek name, he was part of a family that was uh, well-to-do, and uh, oftentimes they would give them Hebrew names as well as Greek names, and uh, likely he was well-educated, and certainly being a Pharisee, and uh, the, the words that Jesus was saying and the expectations that Jesus had clearly identified that, that he was a scholar of some sort, okay? Um, so those three things I think are important for us. So let's kind of summarize that a little bit here. Here we have the introduction of the best choice to represent man, a man who comes with political power, moral excellence, and contemporary scholarship. How would you like to sit down and share the gospel with him? I mean, you see how, how John is, is handpicking, obviously by divine providence here and, and guidance, this encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Just, here's a man, here's the kind of person we're talking about, but we're talking here about a person who is a religious, um, a religious believer, a superficial believer, and yet this person needs the gospel. This person needs the truth communicated and shared with them. So why does Nicodemus come to Jesus? Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that uh, you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why Nicodemus came by night. Was he coming under the cloak of darkness so as not to be seen by others? Possibly. Um, text doesn't tell us that. just says that he came by night. And you might say, well, the fact that it says that, you know, at least, you know, it's there for a reason. Okay, it's possible he came by night, maybe simply just to be careful. Um, was he coming at night because there would likely be more opportunity to talk and uh, be less interruptions and the crowds would not be there? That's probably also very likely. Um, and so the thing I want you to realize here, though, that we might make a lot of the fact that he came by night. I think the thing we need to make a lot of is the fact that he even came. Here he is coming to Jesus, and he is saying some things to him um, that are 
respectful, but also a little patronizing. And I think, I think if you read it this way, I think you'll, you may come to the same conclusion. He identifies Jesus with a respectful title, rabbi, and then he attributes that he is a teacher come from God. So that seems respectful, um, except that think about all the things that Jesus has been doing. What kind of things has he done? He's done amazing things. I mean, he, he's performed miracles. Well, you're just a rabbi. You're just a teacher. A, a rabbi and a teacher who may have been touched by God, you might say. But here's the, here's the patronizing part of it. What does, what does Nicodemus say? He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. Now, the, the fact that he says we know indicates that he likely is a willing representative of a group of people, probably also Pharisees or religious leaders, that listened and heard and saw what Jesus was doing and want kind of to find out a little bit more. It could be curiosity. It could be uh, just trying to figure out what's going on with this person. But they've already come to their conclusions as to what's going on. That Jesus, this person Jesus, is a rabbi. And he's a teacher, and uh, certainly, um, you know, maybe God has his hand on him in some way, shape, or form. But he says, we know. We grasp what God is doing here. Now, I want you to think about this theme of we know in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Right here with Nicodemus, he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Jesus says to Nicodemus, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen. This is Jesus now responding to him later. I think this is chapter 11 or 12. We, we know, Jesus says. In other words, you don't know. You think you know, but you don't know. And that's really going to be the argument that comes in the next few verses. Then Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, which is really this, this, this encounter with someone who is uh, who was a Gentile as opposed to someone who would be a Jew. Um, this is what Jesus says. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, it's just interesting to me, just this, this, this word or this expression, we know. And here's, here's Nicodemus. Well, you know, we know. We, we, we've pretty much figured out you're a rabbi, you're a teacher, and that God's kind of blessing the things that you do. We, we figured out, but we just want to, you know, want to interact. Well, he doesn't really get too far because Jesus jumps in the way. But listen, this is, this is part of the reality. He doesn't recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't recognize that he is the, the king of kings or the son of man. He just simply acknowledges that he's a teacher, a rabbi, a co-laborer who had been touched by God. And this is the way often, friends, um, it is with religious people of our day. They don't necessarily want to reject Jesus altogether. I mean, as C.S. Lewis says, hey, listen, you've you got three choices. He's either Lord, liar, or lunatic, right? And they would say, well, I don't know, I don't know about that. We don't want to answer that question because, you know, we, we do embrace Jesus, but ultimately they embrace Jesus on their terms. Well, let me give you kind of a, an idea. Um, Islam would say, well, he, he is a great prophet. They acknowledge him. They acknowledge his words. They acknowledge the word of God as being part of the, you know, the religious um, resource that is out there that is helpful for our spiritual growth. Hindus would say, well, he was a great example. He had wise words for us to consider. They, they would hold him up as being you know, part of, you know, history's, um, you know, I would say divine presence. Not necessarily that he was divine, but somehow that he was a unique person that was used by the gods to, to teach us many good things. Socialists and communists would say he was a great man, a revolutionary who spoke for the poor and the middle class. So they're not rejecting Jesus necessarily, but they want Jesus on their own terms. Liberals would say he was a gentle lover of people who preached peace. Okay? So, so what happens is, is that whatever these religious or ideological groups, 
desire, they, they, they kind of take bits and pieces of the story of Jesus and his teachings and they create and form this Jesus of their own making. And that's who they say, yeah, we, we can handle that. Now listen, that's exactly what the Jews in Christ's day had done. They had taken the Old Testament and they had read into various passages and stories their own ideas that they were therefore unable to see the truth of what was being revealed. I put it this way. There is just as much love for a distorted Jesus as there is hatred for him. There is certainly a love for a distorted Jesus. Not everyone hates him. They hate the Jesus that we proclaim, but they don't hate the Jesus that they embrace. Because their embrace Jesus kind of just smooths it over, and he is, he's been created to suit their needs. So they're happy with him being a good rabbi, a respectful teacher, touched or inspired by God, but they reject the fact that he's the Messiah, the King of Kings, or the Son of God. Now, um, let's look at the message that then Jesus identifies. Jesus had been simply a rabbi. Had he been a simply a rabbi or a teacher, what Nicodemus was saying would have been welcome accolades to him, would have been really a, a word of support, but Jesus really kind of cuts him off midstream. And he's quick to tell Nicodemus that although, <laughs> although he and others know, and I put that in quotes, the reality was that they did not know what they were talking about. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Where did that come from? Well, I mean, go back to verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no, for no one can do these things uh, that you do unless God is with him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's going on here? They were claiming to know. And Jesus is saying, you don't have a clue. This was a reproof for Nicodemus and his represented friends. You're clueless, you're ignorant, you're blind. You think you know, but you don't know, and ultimately you can't know unless you are born again or born from above. That's another way you could say that. The expression born again has been so watered down, hasn't it? Um, it's kind of word or expression you find now used in our culture to talk about people who have just simply turned over a new leaf. Um, they have lost weight, and now they're a new person. Um, they have having a fresh start in some way, right? There, there's this, it's a born-again experience. And it, it just, it means whatever those people want to fill in, it means. And so honestly, in my, in my I want to say, much more recent Christian history, I've tried to avoid using that expression just simply because it comes culturally with some kind of just fuzziness to it. Um, and uh, at the same time, I want to be careful that I'm not letting the tail wag the dog, and so I'm, I'm abandoning God's truth, because it is a proper biblical terminology, isn't it? It is theologically accurate. It does describe what Jesus Christ has done and is doing in us, and so we've got to be careful. I mean, we don't, we don't abandon the rainbow because other people have picked it up. All right? It is God's symbol. This is God's terminology. And we you know, should be careful then to identify it, embrace it, define it, and use it appropriately. But listen, even superficial believers consider themselves to be born again. You read the Barna reports. Um, boy, this whole country is full of born-again people. It just means a completely different thing to different people. All right? Here, here is ultimately... I think what we need to recognize, though, um, spiritual insight, and this is what Jesus is saying, is impossible unless spiritual transformation has taken place. You cannot comprehend, Nicodemus, what is going on here unless you have spiritual transformation that has taken place in your life. 
And unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't see um, kingdom realities. You cannot see spiritual realities. It's not possible for you to do that. Superficial belief can only result in superficial understanding. Some people have kind of a, a superficial understanding of who Jesus is. Ultimately, they're just going to have a super, uh, superficial understanding of theology and truth. And Now, th- th- there is a passage of Scripture. It's right there, 1 Corinthians 2.14, that I think is really important for us here. Turn, if you would, please, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. I don't have it on the overhead. And this is really helpful for us, I think. It says there, the natural person, in other words, the person who is not spiritual, who doesn't have the Spirit of God living in them, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They can't. All right? You came today, you probably came with the Bible. Unless you have the Spirit of God living in you, all this is going to be is a historical record and really a textbook of sorts. Unless you have the Spirit of God in you, this is simply words on a page. It is not alive. It is not penetrating. It is, it is just, it's just there. But it's the Spirit of God that gives you understanding and awareness of what God desires and what He's explaining and what those realities are and how they connect together. Without the Spirit of God, this is simply a piece of literature. Okay? Now, if you're not born from above, if you're not regenerated by the Spirit of God, if you're not a child of God born of the will of God, which is John 1, 12-13, he talks there about uh, being children of God born by the will of God. You, you cannot, you, you will not understand spiritual realities. And to be born again is not simply a superficial adjustment to your life. And let's look at a couple of, of these definitions. First of all, I, I want you to notice the one that's in your hand out there. J.I. Packer. It is not an alteration, talking about regeneration or being born again, it is not an alteration or addition to the substance of faculties of the soul, but a drastic change wrought upon the fallen human nature which brings man under the effective dominion of the Holy Spirit and makes him responsive to God which previously he was not. Now J.C. Ryle's definition, which is up on the screen for you too, it is a thorough change of heart will, and character. It is a resurrection. It is a new creation. It is a passing from death to life. It is the implanting in our dead hearts a new principle from above. This is what we call salvation. This is what we call conversion. This is specifically what we call regeneration. Okay? So there's this expression born again, which describes what happens to you. There's the expression born from above, Um, which describes the source of that regeneration. It comes from above. And then uh, chapter 1 and verse 13, there's the expression, born of the will of God. This is something that began in the heart of God. This is part of his purpose. This is part of his plan. So here's the message that Jesus has for Nicodemus. You think you know, but you don't know. And the reason you don't know is because you're not born again. Now, just understand this. Those who are superficial believers may think they know, but they don't. Those who are religious, who appreciate the Bible, who appreciate Jesus as a historical figure and a prophet and a religious person, think they know, but they don't. Why? Because unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now, although Nicodemus was a learned man, a philosopher, and a student of the Scriptures, he still had no clue what Jesus was talking about. He was certainly foggy in his thinking. So now let's look, number three, at the marvel that is indicted. The the marvel that is indicted. I'm pulling that word marvel from verse 7, where Jesus says, Do not marvel 
that I said to you, you must be born again. Well, he is. <laughs> That's what he's doing. How in the world can you say this, Jesus? I don't comprehend this. And the whole idea of being indicted is ultimately because he is a teacher of the Jews. But let's just think through this a little bit. Let's see how Nicodemus responds to Jesus' compelling words. Verse 4, first of all, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Right? It's kind of like the modern day kind of version of what's going on here. He's He's just not getting it. Now, language sometimes can be such that uh, things we communicate mean absolutely nothing to other people. Oftentimes, we, they, they come in the form of idioms. When I was in college, I had a, uh, wasn't a roommate. He was a guy across the hall. He was from Japan. His name is Yuichi. Um, he came over to college, and he didn't speak much English at all. And he kept a steno notebook, and he would write down any idiom he heard because he wanted to know what it meant, and he didn't realize how much we talk in idioms. And he's just a couple for you, all right? I mean, think about it. He said, you know, says, you know, Rod, what is it's raining cats and dogs? Explain that to someone. You know, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Or um, it's water under the bridge. Now you get a little bit, you know, understanding, okay, there's a flow and you kind of connect the dots there. Now here's here's a test for you. Um, and uh um, in Japan, they have this expression. It was like making tea with your navel. Yum, <laughs> right? <laughs> Try it sometime, you know. I don't <laughs> you know, it means it was laughable. Now, you try and connect the dots there, it's, it's kind of hard. All right, now, my Russian friends, you're not allowed to speak here, okay? But one of, one of the sayings in Russia is, I'm hanging noodles on your ears. It's a lovely picture. It sounds like you went for Asian food and had a fight, right? I mean, it's just, you know, but that's, that's not the idea. You know what it means? And I'll use a, another idiom to describe it. I'm pulling your leg. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, sure, that makes perfect sense, yeah, I'm hanging noodles on your ears, yeah, that's, that clearly makes sense, you know, yeah. And then just think about, I'm pulling your leg, I mean, where do we get that from? But we all said, oh, yeah, I understand what you mean. Okay, and the, the point I'm trying to make is that when we hear idioms like that, we just, we don't know, it's just like blank, I mean, and I, I think this is where Nicodemus is. Jesus says, you must be born again, and it's just like, you blank, nothing. So are you saying that I have to go into my mother's womb again? You know, now, if you could see Jesus in the conversation, you wonder whether he's just shaking his head, or you know, if it were us, we'd be banging our head against the wall, you know, something like that. He does not understand at all. He does not comprehend. It is a blank stare. So how does he respond? First of all, uh, he, he responds with a complete lack of understanding. It appears that Nicodemus is miles away from truly comprehending the words of Jesus. He can only contemplate them in terms of natural childbirth, and he's really utterly confused. Then verse 7, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. What do you mean, do not marvel? He's saying, you, you should know. This is a warning to Nicodemus. Listen, it's also a warning to us. And to anyone that values the Bible or values the person of Jesus Christ, unless one is born again, he cannot. Don't marvel at that. Although our culture has become cynical about warnings, um, warnings are important, are they not? Um, what does it say on the side of a cigarette box? Apart from, hey, dummy, put this down. I mean, I don't think it says that, but it says, what? The Surgeon General has determined that cigarette smoking is dangerous to your health. Well, that's nice and official, isn't it? You know. Um, how about, and this is probably even more to our liking, um, on coffee cups. Warning, coffee may be hot. Thank you for that. 
helpful information there that um, now I'm able to face my day more effectively. Um, you know, so, so sometimes warnings are just, you know, they, they become kind of a, a foolish thing in our culture, but we need to pay attention here. Jesus is warning Nicodemus, listen, do not, do not marvel that I said to you. you. You should know what this is talking about. You, you should understand this. Now go to verse 9 and verse 10. This is after Jesus further explains it, and we're going to get to that in a little bit, but Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. You're supposed to be the teacher. You're supposed to understand what I'm saying here. Nicodemus is still completely baffled. But you can't understand them because you're not born again. You're blind. So although there is a complete lack of understanding, there's also get this, there's no lack of accountability or responsibility. You might want to say responsibility instead of accountability there. He's without excuse. You're a teacher, a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand what it is that I'm saying here? You're not off the hook. You're responsible. You should know. Here's a lesson for all of us and for anyone whose religion includes and encompasses an appreciation of God's word and Jesus as being a good teacher or rabbi or prophet or whatever. And I'm talking here about Islam and Hinduism and Mormonism and Catholicism and Jehovah's Witness, all of that and more. You have the word of God and that makes the gospel clear but you have allowed your religion to blind you so that you cannot see the truth of the gospel. You may be confused, but you are not without responsibility. In fact, you are very accountable because you have the very truth right in front of you, but you don't see it. I mean, you, you, you talk to People from all different kind of religions, you know, have you read the Bible? Oh, yeah, we've read the Bible. Yeah, we embrace it. Along with this and this and this and this. Okay, but it's, it's part. If, if you actually read it with an idea of God, show me your truth, or are you reading it simply as a, as a document, as a piece of literature, or some kind of, I might want to say, spiritual piece of literature that's going to beef up maybe your religion, you're missing the point, but it's there, and it's there for you to see, and it's there for you to read. But your religion has blinded you from that. And friends, when we're, when we're ministering to people who are, who are superficial believers, who have a religion, who embrace the truth of God's word, they have everything they need right there in the word of God and in the person of Jesus Christ. But their religion is blinding them. This is what's happening with Nicodemus. And friends, that can also happen with us. They're blind yet responsible. Now, let's go to number four. Number four here is the meaning is illustrated. Jesus then is, is now going to unfold a little bit more what the meaning is here about the whole idea of being born again. First of all, we have this, this water and the spirit. Verse five, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is almost identical to verse 3. Look at verse 3. In verse 3 it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you're looking at this in a parallel way, born again is the same expression as an equals um, born of water and spirit. Understand that? Born again equals born of water and spirit. They're both in parallel um, sync together. Verse 3 says you cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5 says you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, side note, this is Jesus' introduction of 
the kingdom of God in this book. You can't enter it, you can't see it, unless you're born again, unless you're born of water and spirit. Okay? So I'm just trying to make sure that you identify here that being born again equals being born of water and the spirit. Now, it would be... Um, it would be wrong of me to say that um, there hasn't been a lot of ink spilled on this verse of Scripture, okay? <laughs> there has. There's been a lot of people that have written and debated and talked about this, and so there are a number of different views. And let's just go over a few of the major ones here. Um, the first view as to what, is it, what does it mean to be born of water and spirit. Uh, the first view is simply this, natural birth, that the water... Um, is referring to natural birth. In other words, there's two births. Um, there is the first birth, which is, you know, natural birth. You're now part of this earth. You're part of God's creation. And then there's a supernatural birth that takes place after that, okay? That would be interpretation one, number one. Interpretation number two, that what this is talking about is Christian baptism. Now, um, not, that should be just the first one, baptism, all right? Christian baptism, but not necessarily the kind of baptism that we would practice here. This would be a baptism that saves. In other words, saying that baptism is the means by which salvation um, takes place. Okay? This is what is preached and taught um, by many of, if not most, of the early church fathers. Um, the Roman Catholic Church holds to this, and then there are certain arms of the Lutheran Church that believe this. This is typically called baptismal regeneration, okay? That it is baptism that saves. Um, and so they kind of all go together. That you know, Born of water and the Spirit, it's all one activity that is baptism, all right? The third interpretation would be this is referring to John's baptism. Because um, if you remember, um, John came, and he came baptizing, he was preaching repentance, right? And uh, the idea there is that the water is referring to John's baptism and then the Spirit is referring to Jesus' um, baptism. Okay, so there's this being born of the water and of the Spirit. In fact, many, there, there are many, um, many Puritans in England that held to that particular distinction. Um, I would hold to this fourth interpretation and that what is being talked about here is that the water is describing the... Um, activity of the Holy Spirit on the heart of the individual. And the reason I come to that conclusion is because if you look at the first three, I don't see how Nicodemus would know that these things would be true. What does he know? He does know the Old Testament. He does know that there is cleansing that takes place in the heart. Now listen to J.C. Ryle talk about this. This is J.C. Rouse speaking. The expression born of water and of spirit is very peculiar, but it is not more peculiar than the parallel expression, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit and with fire, which is found in Matthew 3.11. I believe that in each case, an element is mentioned in connection with the Spirit in order to show the nature of the Spirit's operation. Men must be baptized with the Holy Spirit, purifying their hearts from corruption as fire purifies metal, and must be born of the Spirit, cleansing their hearts as water cleanses the body. So I understand this, this expression here of being baptized with water and the Spirit is really talking about the cleansing activity of the Holy Spirit that takes place in the heart of a believer. Now turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, because this is, um, this is a you know, key passage in the Old Testament, and I think this is what Nicodemus, as an Old Testament scholar, should have understood. This is a key passage, and we're not going to read the whole thing, but let me just kind of summarize this. Um, you know, God is speaking to Israel, and they have been unfaithful to him, and he is, going to, um, he is going to bring them out of their, um, out of their struggle and bondage. And um, he says, but I'm not doing it for your benefit. <laughs> I'm not doing it for your sakes. I'm doing it for mine. I'm doing it for my name's sake. 
So Ezekiel chapter 37, and uh, just note, in particular, verses 25, sorry, it should be 36, and verses 25 through 27. I'm going to pick it up, though, at verse 22, okay? Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." Now, this is God saying to his people, listen, you have profaned my name, you have shaken your fist at me, but for my name's sake, for my own glory's sake, this is what I'm going to do to you. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to shower you with grace. And your hearts are going to be clean, and the Spirit is going to live inside you. Now, you see the connection here. Now, the interesting thing about the connection here is the very next chapter is the chapter where God sees Israel as just a bunch of dry bones, right? And God breathes out on those bones and they become living. Well, what's going on there? Well, what's taking place in verse 30, chapter 36 is now seen in an illustration in, verse, in chapter 37. This is life happening. So these dry bones come to life once again. So you have this water and spirit. The water emphasizing here the cleansing activity of the Holy Spirit on the individual. Secondly, the flesh and the spirit in this passage in verse 6 it says this. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The idea here is like produces like. The flesh produces flesh, the spirit produces a spirit. He's making a distinction here. The flesh here is not sinful flesh. It's talking about human flesh, right? Our humanity. In our humanity, there is nothing that we can do to earn our favor with God, to earn our spirituality. You can do a lot of things. You can work hard. You can try and you know, impress God in many ways. It will always, 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 always fall short. Regeneration, new life, always comes from the source that is spiritual. All right? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, the source of this change comes from above. It comes from the Spirit itself. It doesn't come from the flesh. There's a huge chasm between the flesh and the Spirit, and only God can close that chasm. He's the one that breathes life into it. Then we have this Last kind of illustration he gives us, the wind and the spirit. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. Now Jesus uses this illustration to describe the activity of the Holy Spirit regenerating the heart. Now, when it comes to wind, we cannot understand it. We, we, we don't control the wind, although we might try, right? There may be some weather people out there that, you know, chase tornadoes and, you know, they try and control all that's happening, but they can't do that. And quite frankly, we do our best to understand it, but it's, 
not always that predictable, right? I mean, weather patterns are there, and our country and our, you know scientists have done a good job to kind of identify those weather patterns and usually the flow of where the winds go. But they're going to go where they want to go, ultimately, right? But we certainly can see the effects of wind. That comes in the form of you know tropical storms, you know trees falling over and leaves blowing all over the place. We can certainly see the effects. Now, the same is true then of the Holy Spirit. We can't understand his activity. Not that we can't you know, go to God's word and understand who the Holy Spirit is and that he does certain things, but we can't understand the reasoning and the thinking behind how he does what he does when he does it and where he does it. He does it. We can't control his actions but we can certainly see the effect of his regenerating power on the life of a believer. Let's just go to that passage again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. You, you hear its sound. You, you hear the effects. You see the effects. And in a person who has been truly born again, there is this new life that is seen with a, a new passion, a new behavior, a new attitude, new longings. And just like those dry bones of Ezekiel 37, when the Holy Spirit breathes, God's people come to life. Now you probably looking at your own walk with God and you look back at that time of conversion in your life and the regeneration that took place, you can see a change in, in how God has been at work in your life now compared to where it was in the past. That change is a result of this new birth and this regeneration. Okay, I can't explain it, except that God willed it. It's all part of his plan. It's all part of his purposes. Right? Now, we're not done with Nicodemus. We're going to pick him up next week, but I do want to kind of step back a little bit and say, listen, this is, this is all what Jesus is arguing for to and with Nicodemus, who is a superficial believer coming and saying, I know. <laughs> you don't know Nicodemus because this is what it means to be born again. It's Holy Spirit activity. It's a Holy Spirit change. It is a cleansing, a total cleansing that comes on the individual. Its source is spiritual. It is not human. And its effects are seen all over the place. Now let's think as we kind of bring things to a close today about how I began by lessons for the superficial believer. So this is either you, if you're a superficial believer, or here are some principles as you are trying to share the truth of God with those who are superficial believers or religious believers, okay? And uh, I think we've already stated them, but I put them together here together to kind of help us uh, understand what, 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 what John ultimately in using Nicodemus is teaching us about, uh, about the evidence that leads to belief that leads to life. First of all, although you say you know about spiritual things, the truth is that you are blind, and spiritual, uh, blind to spiritual realities you don't know. If you're, if you're talking to someone who is religious, they hold to certain beliefs, don't they? And if they embrace the Bible as part of their, you know, their, their one of the many resources they look at in their whole spiritual development, they're ultimately saying that I am including this. And by that, they're saying I know in their mind, but they don't. They're blind. They're ignorant. Okay? That's the first thing. Secondly, your blindness does not remove your responsibility before God. Now, I, I'm not saying here, sit down across the table and, and rattle these things off to them. Okay? That may not be as effective. But I, I want you to understand, if you're dealing with someone who is religious, that these are realities. They are blind to the fact that they do not truly know, although they think they do. And they are responsible for God. Now that may be something they don't know. But it is certainly something that you can use as part of your discussion and part of your witnessing with them. Number three, the only way that you can see or enter the kingdom of God is to be born again. You say, well, yeah, of course. 
Um, that's what Jesus says. Um, he's a pretty good example for us. Um, he's uh, saying it very, very plainly to someone who is a uh, religious believer. You're not going to be able to see spiritual realities. You're not going to be enter spiritual realities unless you are born again. Now, the problem is that in many cultures, there is some kind of a conversion, right? In many religions, you might want to say, there is some kind of a conversion. And that might be perceived as a born-again experience. Right? So that you're going to have to explain what it means to truly be born again. Number four, new life is uniquely a supernatural work of God. Not the result of man, man's efforts, but God's unmerited favor. And for many who are superficial believers, they still, in their mind, think of a relationship with God in terms of what do I have to do? We call that a works approach as opposed to a grace approach. Okay? And just being able to kind of lay that out, saying, listen, you, you have all this before you, but you're still pursuing God with, with an attitude of works, which, which he, is, he is not accepting. He does not accept. And he says to Nicodemus, who is a man of moral character in that culture, who has political clout, who's a scholar, you don't know unless you're born again, you cannot see, and you can't enter. I mean, we're talking about a narrow gate, aren't we? We're talking about bringing the funnel down to the small option. But that small option is certainly sourced in the Spirit of God who is at work in individuals which we have no control of. <laughs> which means we have to leave it to God. Be faithful to represent him and leave the rest to God. Here's the last one. The new birth is made clear by its effects. You will begin to see lasting change take place. You will see change in the life of a believer. And, and this is where we must be very, very careful that we don't kind of approach our evangelism, especially when it comes to those who are superficial in their belief or religious believers that we don't just kind of only measure it based on some kind of a conversion experience that meant that they, you know, marched down an aisle or they, you know, they, they had this, you know, incredible emotional thing. For, for them, it will be the Spirit of God slowly seeping in. That's likely how it's going to happen. The Word of God finally just be becoming alive. Let me just take you to a couple of passages of Scripture as we bring this right to a close. Look, if you would, please, at chapter 7 and verse 50 of John's Gospel. Chapter 7 and verse 50 of John's Gospel. You see, this is not the last time that we see Nicodemus. There's no indication that Nicodemus walks away from this encounter um, born again. In fact, what we see is he's in a fog. We see that he's still in this kind of stubborn place of, huh, what? But at chapter 7 and verse 50, um, I want you to notice um, that Nicodemus, well, let's pick it up at verse 45. The officers came and, uh, to the chief priests and, and Pharisees who said to him, why did, you, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, talking about Jesus, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or, or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is a curse. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man, uh, a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? What Nicodemus ultimately is doing here is defending Jesus. He's sticking up for him. He's saying, listen, because these guys just want to go right for the jugular and kind of bypass things. And he's saying, well, wait, wait, wait a second here. 
shouldn't, shouldn't we allow due process to take place here before we, we, we jump on his case? And then go to chapter 19, chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 38. Oh, I'm in the wrong book. Here, Jesus is being crucified, and he is being taken to um, the tomb. And we find here um, Nicodemus in verse um, 38 and following. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, my, my point here is to say this. Although we have this early encounter recorded for us with Nicodemus, and there doesn't seem to be any light bulb going off, by the end of the Passion Week and after Jesus has been crucified, we find Nicodemus on the scene as one of those that is there helping to prepare the body. Along with Joseph of Arimathea, who is a secret believer. Guilt by association here. <laughs> What's happened to Nicodemus? Um, you know what? The gospel may have penetrated. This, this born again reality may have connected in his heart. And I just want to encourage you, as, as I've been speaking this morning, you may have been thinking about people who are religious believers, superficial believers that you've tried to share the gospel with and you've tried to minister to. Um, don't give up. It may take a long time. And if they value the Bible, even simply as a worthy resource, a worthy book, challenge them to read it. And challenge them to, to, to ask God to open their eyes to what the Word of God actually is teaching. Because they are responsible and accountable to God because they have his truth there. They're religious, but they're blind, but they're not without hope because the wind blows, the spirit blows wherever he wishes, and he may very well be working through your testimony and your time with them. Lord, help us today. We ourselves may very well be superficial believers And sometimes spiritual realities seem completely blind to us. We have no clue. And I ask, Lord, that if that is true of us, that we would ask ourselves the question, are we truly born again? And Lord, it's okay. It's okay to allow your warnings to shake us up, to ask questions like that, so that we can even come back and say, Lord, yes, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I'm your child and I'm, I, I'm part of your kingdom. And we thank you, Lord, for those opportunities just to, to look hard into our hearts and to, to weed out sin and even a blindness that would come as a result of sin. Help us to be faithful as we open the word of God with friends and as we dialogue, Lord, with those who are superficial or religious. But, Lord, to trust that because they embrace God's truth, or I should say the Bible, and they embrace Jesus as a wise man or a prophet. Or th th there is a, there's a foot in, so to speak, that makes them accountable based on those realities. And Lord, that, that under that accountability and under that responsibility, Lord, that a spark would begin in their lives, that they would begin to see the need for, uh, for them to be born again. And that this message of Nicodemus, or that Jesus gives to Nicodemus, would, would be received by this kind of a person. And they would understand that without being born again, they cannot see the kingdom, they cannot enter the kingdom, and that they need you desperately. 
And then, Lord, for we who are your children, help us to rejoice over the fact that that conversion for us, regeneration for us, is a whole being cleansing. That as your Spirit embraced us and brought us, Lord, to the cross, and as we responded to that by faith, Lord, that you you did an incredible work in our heart, and you cleansed us, Lord, you purified us with your Spirit. And Lord, that is only as a result of of what you have desired in the heavens that your will was accomplished in our salvation. Lord, help us to trust that even as we share that your Holy Spirit is accomplishing his purposes and however he desires to do it, Lord. Our responsibility is to open our mouths, to give the evidence, to point to the cross, to point to the gospel, and then to trust you. Help us to be faithful in that, we ask in your name.